Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky with the Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Zachary Scott, who is the CEO and founder of GreenCarbon.com, a decarbonization company that's building out scalable carbon negative solutions. Welcome aboard, Zach. Thank you, Richard. Um, so, Zachary, Green Carbon, you're a decarbonization company that's working heavily with agricultural waste. And you and I met, oh, five, six years ago, probably in London at uh, one of the events, which was a cannabis-related uh, event. And the cannabis industry generates a lot of agricultural waste. And it's often a question of what to do with it. There's been people who are looking and investigating opportunities to use it in uh, in the place in concrete, uh, to use another construction materials, do all sorts of things. But you're dealing with things beyond just cannabis, but obviously cannabis is of interest. So tell us a bit about Green Carbon. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and like I said, thanks for having me on. Um, it's, it, it has been a journey since we met. Um, initially, I was looking at how we can sequester carbon from the atmosphere by utilizing industrial hemp, um, the cannabis plant. It has miraculous carbon sequestration capabilities, as you know. And this is something that I decided to really pursue um, as an individual because it's something that simply mattered to me. Now, when we started planting research trials, um, we planted research trials across uh, Colombia, um, Nigeria, as well as uh, Malaysia. We actually were faced with a lot of issues when we first entered these countries because Cannabis was the death penalty in Malaysia, for example. Yep. We were able to break down those barriers. We were able to work with the government, educate them about the difference between cannabis and industrial, uh, well, I should say marijuana and industrial hemp. Um, yep. And yep. once they understood the difference, they were very open to looking at industrial applications for the plant. We were initially targeting fiber, biofuels, biodegradable plastics, et cetera, using the uh, fascinating properties of the hemp plant and its fiber and cellulose and hemicellulose. That said, we ended up pivoting to a, to a different model that is focused on material science. Um, okay. Now, the reason is, is because when we were challenged by environmental scientists regarding right, right. why or how we could actually secure the carbon that, we were, that the plant was going to photosynthesize for 20 to 100 years, but their minimum benchmark was really 100 years of lockdown, we, right, we were right. faced with a challenge where we said, well, wait a minute, if we make textiles, They'll end up in a dump in today's fast fashion, and they'll end yep. up biodegrading. Uh, biodegradable plastics naturally biodegrade and return that to the atmosphere. Biofuels would be combusted and would return that CO2 to the atmosphere. And no applications that we were able to identify were really making sense for long-term lockdown. That's what led us to looking at different types of technologies, utilizing pyrolysis, gasification, in order to convert that biomass into biochar. Now, biochar is a pretty well-known um, product. It's used traditionally as a soil amendment, right, um, right. and that's great, and it has great uses for that. Um, that said, we've patented a process where we can convert biochar from pyrolysis and gasification processes into advanced carbon materials. Um, so for us, this is where we've landed today. We're looking at any applic applications in batteries, polymers, metal carbon composites, you name it, and uh, there seems to be oh, a very oh, strong demand. So let's go back for a second. For within yeah. batteries, how would you use the product? Uh, so within batteries, we would basically replace the anode. Um, so the anodes okay. today are traditionally made from graphite. Yep. Um, graphite is sourced from China for uh, primarily. That's where yep. the U.S. sources 75% of its graphite. So for us, um, we're able to replace the anode material uh, directly as a, as a drop-in replacement that is plant-based and carbon negative. Right, and so 
but batteries get recycled. I mean, if you have a lithium battery in your car, it's about eight years, right? That's right. Um, other batteries, let, let's just say eight to 10 years for batteries. I mean, forget the ones around your house, which you're going to throw away based on usage much sooner, um, okay. unfortunately. But what happens then? Because you're still running back into that cycle with the sequestration. Well, now battery, it's a great question. And battery companies and OEMs, um, I just attended a ARPA-E event that was hosted by the Department of Energy in Chicago a couple of months ago. And the topic of the event was battery circularity and the ability to recycle these materials uh, long term and repeat the use of these materials. Um, so that said, it is now something that is uh, that the United States and the Department of Energy are, are, are funding, um, which is um, these battery circularity and recycle, recycle, recycling technologies um, to then reuse that carbon over and over again in batteries. So that is a, a for us, end of life is very important. And I'm glad you brought that up. That is why we do feel batteries are going to be one of the best applications for these carbons, uh, because they can be reused and recycled um, by OEMs going forward. Right, because I mean, like you mentioned construction and, uh, you know, then we got into electronics and packaging. And of course, construction, ideally, you're building a house for 100 years. Sure, exactly. Right? Um, I mean, we're not the Romans who built things to last 2000 years. I don't think we have many buildings that are done that, but it would be nice if we did, but the materials do last. So, but more heavily consumed products are the small ones that we buy and throw away. Um, how does it work with vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, replacing plastics? Like people have right now in many places, people are growing, they've got plastic bins everywhere to grow plants in. At the end of a year, a lot of people throw them away or they get paint in a big plastic tub. H how does it apply into that? At this moment, we are unsure. Um, okay. we, we don't know how these carbons will perform in thermosets or thermoplastics. Right. Um, we are testing that at this time. Um, so in about six months, we'll have that data. However, it's still a concern. The end of life is still a concern. And we don't want to source our carbon for companies that don't have a strong end of life or recycling plan. Um, right. Because otherwise, the consumer, once they purchase that product, they can do whatever they want with it. And that, that's kind of the same thing that the OEMs that we that were speaking at the ARPA-E event in Chicago, such as BMW, Nissan, Mercedes-Benz, et cetera, they were all kind of communicating that it's hard to incentivize the owner of the vehicle to return that battery um, and, uh, and, and to recycle that battery. So it, it, it does become a customer decision. And that's why we do want to look at a lot of B2B uh, options and also energy storage systems, which we are very excited about. Um, those would be stationary. They would be long-term energy storage systems, such as sodium ion batteries. And sodium right. ion batteries do require hard carbons for their anode. And mm -hmm. plants naturally produce hard carbons uh, when they're carbonized. Of course. Um, and what plant material have you found? Is there a difference between the source plant material in terms of the results and return? Yes, there is. And a which bit... ones are giving you the best returns? You know, it's up in the air. I would just say hemp provides mm -hmm. a great, a great material. Um, it, it all, though, comes down to how it is pyrolyzed or how it is gasified. You know, under okay. what conditions? Are the conditions inert? 
Um, and, and are they under the presence of nitrogen? Um, how long are you carbonizing that material? These are the kind of the, the, if you would, the knobs we've been turning that we, over the past five years of research and development to understand how to optimize that process. Um, so different types of feedstock require different types of carbonization temperatures, carbonization times, uh, uh -huh. et cetera. So some, some types of, some feedstock we could carbonize for one, two hours. Um, right. Some feedstock we need to carbonize for up to 10 hours to get the same performance um, or to eliminate the functional groups such as oxygen from that material to make it conductive. Um, so it, it really does vary, but I would say that cellulosic and hemicellulosic materials uh, we find to work better than lignin-based uh, waste streams. Okay, that makes sense. And, you know, if you're working with cannabis and temp, um, one of the amazing properties of the plant is it's a vacuum cleaner for all the heavy metals in the earth. That's right. How do you deal with that? It's a great question. So our char usually comes out to about 90 to 95% carbon. So we're only left with about five to 10% ash and mineral, mineral and metal content um, right. that we need to eliminate. Um, and we do that through a heating process and through a, through a heating, through a filtration, through a uh, milling process, et cetera, to really isolate uh, the pure carbon. Um, so that's, that's, that's traditionally how we've been doing it to date. The pyrolysis process and gasification process already begins removing a lot of these um, impurities, if you will. Um, yep. But but for us, you know, we only have to remove about five to ten percent impurities, which is really great for us. If we were to use materials that are really high um, in ash content, such as uh, rice husks, you know, this right. is something that would give us thirty to thirty-five percent carbon, and to 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 bring that to its pure carbon form would take far too much energy and time. It's it's a lot easier for us to take out five to ten percent of impurities. Like I said, that comes through a heating, uh, filtration, and milling process that we've uh, identified. Right. Okay. Now that makes sense. So, and we've got to take a short break, but we'll be back in a minute with Zachary Scott from greencarbon.com. And we're back with Zachary Scott from greencarbon.com. Going back on something you said earlier, uh, like you were dealing with a lot of the large auto manufacturers, are there particular industries that are more receptive to you? And are really much, and it's not receptive to you. It's really who are much more aggressive um, in adopting the technology, and also ones that you you're surprised by. That's a great question. Yes, uh, the you know battery manufacturers are really looking for OEMs specifically on of for for the automotive in the automotive sector are right. very interested in a replacement for graphite. They uh -huh. realize that they have a because of potential issues that we've faced in the future with China, they want to as quickly as possible eliminate our dependency or reduce our dependency on Chinese graphite. So that's the one that we're really seeing the most interest from is right. how quickly can we replace that anode material in batteries and how quickly can we deliver a drop-in replacement that doesn't require any modification in their production or manufacturing line. Um, right. So that's, those are the ones that really seem to be the most bullish are people that can, where it's a drop-in replacement or drop-in solution. So you don't actually have to transform the supply chain. You're actually just replacing the part supply instead of part you know, widget one, two, three, you're buying four, five, six. That's right. It's manufactured to the same specs, or at least the physical size matches. That's right. Particle size, morphology, surface area. If you match those specs mm -hmm. that the clients have, have are traditionally, you know, used to working with, yep. it doesn't matter where the carbon came from. Carbon is carbon once you take it down to its, to that fundamental element. Exactly. So towards that, <clears throat> um, this requires a lot of manufacturing capacity and a lot of processing capacity. 
um, because you know with what you're working you know you you're if you take a a ton of plant material you're going to end up with a few kilos at best of residual how are you how are you building that out both from the conversion and then let's get to manufacturing after so conversion is interesting. We have been, to date, we've been working with pyrolysis partners. Rather than manufacturing our own pyrolysis system, we worked with some couple of great companies. One is named Core Infrastructure. They're out of Los Angeles. Great group of guys that have EPA certified pyrolysis systems. Their systems are primarily focused on the production of synthesis gases for green hydrogen uh, production. That's really what they're bread and butter is. Now, okay. I would say what they end up having is a waste stream, a biochar that they throw into massive uh, waste management bins and throw into and end up in a dump. Right. That is actually our treasure. Uh, yep. Their trash is our treasure in that in that case. So, so partnering with groups like that, that are focused on energy production, clean energy production, and their waste stream is our precursor is a yep. really, really great opportunity for us um, for initial scale. For initial yeah. small-scale operations, right, and testing, et cetera. Now, when we get to actually, when we want to scale this business, and that will be after we receive some customer commitments, um, and uh, you know, to to deliver large quantities of these materials, then we'll look at, and we've already begun designing our own um, containerized, transportable pyrolysis or gasification system. Um, so, and what this does is, most of these systems today, such as Core, there's another great company out of Germany called Pyreg. These uh -huh. guys have these wonderful systems. They've designed and engineered amazing um, processes that are very clean and good for the environment. However, they are not transportable. They are stationary, and you have to bring the feedstock to the systems. Right. Uh, and feedstock logistics are very costly, uh, laborious, you know, et cetera. So that said, we, we would like to solve that problem by designing a containerized, transportable system um, not necessarily mobile, but more transportable, um, that we can bring to different sites that have a lot of agricultural waste, process that material on site, and then ship a much higher value material from there versus low value feedstock. Right. Now, so with that, you know, you need to locate your facility where the, where the producers are. That's right. And in many cases, the producers um, use those materials to compost, to create, well, to renew their fields. Sure. You need to change people's behavior. <clears throat> What's the incentive? Because the incentive on the other end is easy, but for the farmer, th that's, a, that's a significant change because that's valuable product. Well, it's interesting you say, you know, we, that you say that because we've seen different types of scenarios here. We've seen, we've spoken to some farmers where it's actually a headache for them to deal with their stock waste. They, right. It's a cost center. It is something that uh, costs them time and money. And they're actually looking for someone to just pick up that waste. They would prefer that someone pick up that waste. Then you have the smaller groups that actually are composting and, and, and using regenerative farming practices that are really uh -huh. conscious. We don't want to mess with their processes. If they have a nice system that's regenerative and that, that works for them, those are not the types of customers we'd be looking at or, or, or I would sh should say suppliers that we'd be uh, connecting with. It's more of these high volume guys that are maybe manufacturing, uh, maybe producing actual uh, uh, marijuana flour uh, for the medical industry or for the recreational industry that have right. no use for those stocks. And a lot of these guys we've even spoken to are burning um, piles of stocks in open air and returning all of that carbon to the atmosphere. This is really what we fundamentally want to prevent uh, from right. happening so we can keep that carbon trapped because these plants have 
incredible sequestration properties. But then we can also look at other types of feedstock. I mean, we're looking at walnut shells, for example. There's 300 <laughs> million tons of walnut shells coming out of Central Valley in California. Well, any organic product really works as an input, right? As long That's as it's right. not tainted in any way. That's right. Yeah. And then, you know, once you have, <clears throat> and, and what is the conversion rate for you? Where you, the amount of char per ton of input? About 10%, 10% yield. Okay. So you get about a hundred kilos for every ton that goes in. So right. 250 pounds per 2000 odd. Okay. okay. Um, then to actually turn it in from a manufacturing perspective, how much, let's say you're going to build one anode, how much do you need? Oh, well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I actually don't know the answer to that yet. Um, we are using, we are, we are, we are running tests right now at coin cell scale. So right. we're using literally kilograms, uh, you know, of material, but it, it is a very, it's a very, very small scale. So um, we are, have yet to achieve pouch cell scale. That mm -hmm. is what we will achieve over the next six months. Um, right. So we're, we're, like I said, at this time, we're using literally grams and kilograms of material to run tests at coin cell levels. I'm not sure, and I don't know the answer because I'm not a battery expert myself, but I do have a battery expert on my team um, down at UT Austin um, who's running all of these experiments. And that's where, that's, that's our partner is uh, the University of Texas in Austin to right. produce these materials. They are the battery experts. I will go to them. I'll ask that question and I'll come back to you with that information so you have it. Yeah, no, I mean, it all goes into the scaling. I mean, you've got a your business is interesting because there's people already doing the conversion to gas. They have the the waste product, which happens to be the product you need. So you're changing the supply chain where instead of them dumping it into the garbage, you've actually got a use for it. I did, you know, I started a project a few years ago where I had a market in Asia which wanted to buy salmon heads after the mm -hmm. fish had been caught and used, but it was impossible to get the fisheries to change over to sell me the heads for use because they were just used to throwing in the garbage and putting it into a large bin to compost into fertilizer for fish soil for people to use in their gardens. And it wasn't worth their while to change their pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, in your case, you've got a waste product is really, you know, they are throwing in the garbage and you're willing to go pick up and turn it into something. So then it just becomes a matter of how much do you need to have the impact? Because, right. you know, if you, it isn't, it probably doesn't make sense if you can only produce enough uh, anodes for one car manufacturer, but it That's does right. if you can make it for everybody. That's right. Absolutely. And um, when do you hope to be able to test those scaling uh, questions? As far I as mean, you've always, you got to, it's, you've, I, I guess it's a bit of a hard and core, um, hard and course, a horse and cart um, yes. where, you know, you're, you're still working through some of the development cycles, but you do, you must have some sense of the amount of input required to produce a physical item of a certain size. Oh, sure. You know, but, but just as far as the scale numbers, that's where I, that's where, what we've not achieved yet. Um, right. and a clear understanding of, but look, will we intend to be at um, ton production um, and ton scale within probably 12 months. Okay. Um, and, um, and, and, and that, that can address a pretty large uh, market at, at ton scale. Um, right. Because of, like I said, the very low amount or quantities that are required per battery. Mm -hmm. um, and, and initially we won't, we won't just start selling right to an OEM. Of they're course you can't. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to take our materials. They're going to test it. They're going to run tons of tests in their own R&D yep. facilities, ensure that it performs at the same level, if not better than graphite. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to come back to us with a purchase order or they're going to want to license IP. You know, we just don't know where this will go. 
Um, And we're very open, though. So whether it be batteries, polymer additives, elastomer fillers, um, and or metal carbon composites, there's a pretty broad opportunity there for plant-based carbons. No, there is. There is. And, you know, it's it's a great use of the waste product because it does complete that cycle. Um, You know, it, you know, and unfortunately it'll take the manufacturers years to go through all their testing. Um, But that's normal with any new business you're, and you're just helping close the end to end loop. And we've got to take a short break, but we'll be back in a minute with Zachary Scott from greencarbon.com. And we're back with Zachary Scott from greencarbon.com. You know, as you look through it, though, when you're working with an input of graphite, I don't know the price or the amount of cost that goes into an anode. Have you been able to do the calculations to look at it from a competitive perspective, which is, you know, what the price difference is? Is it more expensive, less expensive, or will it come out about the same? It's coming out to just about the same as of at, at today's scale. We do think, though, okay. we can come in at a discount um, at, at, after we've achieved scale. But at, at today's scale, which is literally just kilogram production uh, that we have uh, here in, just outside of Washington, D.C., where we have our R&D facility in Annapolis Junction, right. um, this is at kilogram scale. We're already at, we've already price matched, essentially, this, this material for batteries. Which is, which is great because that's the thing that will make everybody move much more quickly. is you know the economics of it because you know everybody talks about being green but if they it costs them more they stop and think and often don't do it and uh you know it's just like we ask the the corporations to be green but then if their stock price goes you know their profits go down their stock price goes down they don't want to do that because they get blamed on the other side it's it's a pretty tough battle all around so you're you're ramping up you've got you know you're able to do kilo scale um, your 12 months, you believe, from getting to the point of being able to take the next step with regards to manufacturing and working with some of the OEMs. That's right. What's in the way? What's stopping you? Hmm, it's a good question. Um, the, well, it used to be capital. Um, ca- you know, ca- cash is hard to find today in today's yeah. market. Um, but investors are really excited about this now because of, I, I think that what's happening is, is that a lot of people are opening up their eyes to the need to onshore production of critical materials. Right. Uh, that's being kind of mandated also within the federal government. Um, so, so that's helping us from a capital perspective. So it used to be capital. Now, actually, um, it's really just the time that is required to run the tests at, at UT Austin and the time that is required to run the tests within thermosets and metal carbon composites. It's really just time. Um, and it, I so wish it's I not the scientific questions anymore. No. There's not any of those hurdles. It's really just, okay. It's just time. Yeah. Okay. Time to test. We have to run through multiple cycles, charge, discharge, charge, discharge over and over again. And, of course. and, and then at different, and then scale that up, collect right. that data, deliver it to the OEMs and then get their feedback and go from there. So just time is in the way at the moment. Okay. And do you have a roadmap for a product pipeline that you want to tackle? What's the one that really you look at as being the most challenging? The most challenging will probably be uh, silicon, uh, sorry, uh, sodium ion batteries, um, <laughs> because no one ha- has yet developed a formulation uh, for a cell or a cell right. formula right. that performs greater than a lead acid, a battery. Right. Um, there's a great company called, uh, I, think, I think you pronounce it Natron or Natron, that has produced a sodium ion battery for right. um, for data centers. 
uh, for energy storage for data centers. However, right. they have not yet optimized that to perform better than a lead acid battery. So, um, and, the, and it's a very expensive process. And they're also using a semi-toxic material known as Prussian blue um, for the, both the anode and the cathode. So this is not a sustainable battery, if you will. Um, okay. that's, that said, um, you know, it, it's, so sodium ion developing a formula of a cell, producing a formula of a cell that performs near lithium phosphate or near lithium ion performance, obviously won't have the same energy storage uh, capacity. Right. Um, it's, that's about 50% less than lithium that we're seeing today. But if we can just get that performance up uh, to near um, a lithium ion battery uh, performance or even lithium phosphate performance, yep. then we have something very valuable for energy storage systems. Yeah, because so a lot of things don't need the same capacity as lithium for the demand right. or the, right, you can use something that is yeah, less that's powerful. Right. Yeah. That's right. So the anode we know is just hard carbon, but if right. we, we need to develop a very good, very inexpensive, high-performing cathode uh, formula. And that's what that's going to be a, a, gr a much greater challenge than a silicon carbon anode uh, drop-in for lithium ion. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that, you know, the battery storage technologies, the the rate of improvement in it that we see is quite interesting. That's right. As a whole. So your focus for the next few years is going to be on batteries. Yes, I would say our 90% of focus will be on batteries. We do have some really awesome um, uh, material scientists from MIT, Oak Ridge National right. Lab, et cetera, that are very excited about the metal carbon composites and, and polymers and elastomers. So right. we'll have a, a small focus on that, um, which will kind of be funding them as a side project to run in parallel with the battery right. research. Um, because it's, it's, there are other great opportunities. Um, and, and what's exciting about that is, for example, we've been able to put our carbon into aluminum, copper, magnesium um, by blending it with those metal powders, right. and pressing them into little uh, plates and then, or discs and then testing the integrity of that material thereafter. We've seen over, we've been able to more than double the strength of these metals um, mm -hmm. with, just 10, with just a 10% load factor. So that's exciting because then an OEM like a Mercedes, for example, could actually sink atmospheric carbon into the components of the vehicle, making them stronger using less metal um, yeah. and optimizing performance. Yeah, I think people under, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's not, it's not really, it's not a common thing people think about, but when you're using some of these carbon materials as resources within the manufacturing process within and combining them with other things like like metals you do change the overall strength you improve it because of the natural flexibility of the material it doesn't become as brittle so it breaks it has a, a different kind of strength right. um and you know that's always a fascinating part aspect to me because it goes into you know there's the differences in ropes and lines and wiring and electronics and pipes and everything that breaks we can change the dynamics of it and change how long things around our homes last in so many ways that normally would throw things in the garbage that's right that's right um, and if it's carbon negative and it came yeah. from the atmosphere versus the earth it's a it's a win all, all all around it is and i'm you know there's some interesting projects which are like uh, bill gates funded a, a plant that uh, was built outside of whistler and they they're doing a larger scale uh build out um in the lower mainland abbotsford vancouver lower vancouver area mm. with regards i think they're building a 200 million dollar plant that sucks in the air mm. and extracts carbon into pellets but you're giving it a step beyond where you take those pellets and actually 
provide them an application because today the only application is you can turn around and burn them. That's right. Yes. And, and, it's, and it's unfortunate that that type of technology is getting so much press versus just natural photosynthesis. In my right. opinion, you know, look at Biden and nothing political. I've, uh, huh? you know, not, not speaking politics, but as far as the, the project that was just funded for 1.2 billion for carbon drawdown in Texas, and I believe it was Louisiana, these large turbines that pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and then they're sinking it underground. This system sequesters 2 million tons of, car of CO2 per year, each one of right, these right. units. That that costs 1.2 billion for two, for two units, as I understand. We produce 50 billion tons of CO2 per year. Yeah. So, so, so sequestering 4 million tons actually has zero impact. And it's, 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 it's unfortunate because we, the scale of which we need to move and operate from a, from a carbon drawdown perspective is in the billions of tons to actually slow it, global warming. It is. And it's, you know, I mean, part of it I look at in terms of in, in some aspects, you're doing large scale testing. You're building these plants to see what you can do and how you can improve it and refine it. Because if you don't invest in it, there's not going to be all of the, the ancillary spinoffs, just like we sent people to the moon. But really, the benefits were here on Earth with all of the technologies and advances we developed along the way. There are always better ways. Um, but, you know, these programs, they do, they do create jobs, which everybody wants, and they do have a benefit. But I think we can find, I think you're right, we can find better ones. There's better. Um, and well, there's, cannabis. you know, cannabis and, is better. Cannabis is better. Um, you're absolutely right. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things which make a heavily positive impact. And there's huge projects going on, people running around looking to sell carbon credits. But unfortunately, a lot of times people don't actually go and do anything with, uh, planting the trees which they got the credits for they've made their money and they wander off and don't finish it That's it's right. uh you know we we pay a lot of lip service to the environment it's nice to see something like this that is developing a product which hopefully will end up in everybody's cars Yes, that's exactly right and electronics and packaging it's everything that we know right it all exactly. uses carbon yeah, yeah. I, I imagine if you had funded 1.2 billion in subsidies for farmers to rotate hemp into their into their crops. Yep. Um, how much greater of a carbon sequestration capability that would have had um, and, and how better, how much better that would have been for our topsoil, right? There's yep. just, to me, it's just plant hemp. The more hemp we plant, the more carbon we draw down. But just to all those who do grow hemp, please just don't burn that hemp after you've grown it. Contact <laughs> yeah, exactly. us. We'll take it off your hands. There's <laughs> much better ways to use that, that waste product than uh, burning it. And, uh, right. you know, although bonfire is always nice and fun, it's not always the best way to go. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, thanks for joining us today. It was a really My interesting pleasure. conversation. People who want to learn more, right. they can go to greencarbon.com. Yes, sir. That's right. You got it. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to watching what happens and following up with you again in the future. Thank you again, Richard. Appreciate you Thank having you. Me. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky.